0: Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name again today. It's good to be gathered together with fellow believers in the house of the Lord this morning. For this message this morning, I have chosen to look at a passage from of Scripture from Matthew, and we've been studying Matthew a lot the last while, and it's an exciting time in, in history um, as we look about look at Jesus coming to this earth and setting up his kingdom and the principles that he would have us believers to live by. So today's text is going to be taken from Matthew 5 and it's going to be the first 16 verses and there's a passage. If we look back at uh, chapter 4, we see that Jesus had been fasting and uh, praying in the wilderness for 40 days, and then he was tempted by the devil. After the temptations, he received the news that John the Baptist had been put into prison, and when he heard this, he traveled to Galilee and stayed at Capernaum. And we see that in verse 12 of chapter 4. It says, Now when Jesus had heard. which is upon the seacoast in the word of Zebulon and Naphtalim, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtalim, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw, saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and the shadow of death, light is sprung up. So we see here Jesus was fulfilling the prophecies of the prophet Isaiah, and I just, I just thought it would be interesting to look back at that, what Isaiah had to say, and so let's turn to Isaiah 9, verses 1-7, through 7, just to get into some context of, of what was happening here. Isaiah 9, and I'll be reading verses 1-7. through 7. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nations, and not increased joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise, and garments rolled in blood, and this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end, and upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. So we see here that the prophecy that Isaiah shared here was being fulfilled in in today's text. Is that better, Josiah? Okay. All right. So looking at this, when um, we looked at Matthew and we look at Isaiah here, Jesus was fulfilling these prophecies for the coming deliverer. The people of Israel had experienced bondage both spiritually and also from other physical kings around them. In this text here, Isaiah promises deliverance. You know, in the span of the time between Isaiah 9 and Matthew 5, The Hebrews were conquered twice by other kingdoms. They had faced the bitterness of defeat and bondage. But here in this passage, Isaiah prophesies that there would be coming a time of deliverance from their bondage. You know, Isaiah uses the word here, everlasting father, in verse 6. And also in that verse he says that this will be an everlasting kingdom. This coming kingdom was one that would not be defeated like the Jews had previously experienced. Now, the... Here in Matthew, we see that this time has come, the time for this deliverance. God has sent the deliverer Jesus to break the heavy burden, the yoke of sin that had been laid upon all of us, not just the Jews, but on all of us through the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, had come. He's bringing peace to our troubled souls. So we see that prophecy is fulfilled here in in chapter 4. And then next, he calls his disciples. He calls his disciples together to follow him and begins to share with them the truths of this kingdom. So I think today, you know, it's key that we see these these verses that we'll be looking at are the principles that Jesus lays out for us as believers in his um, kingdom. He lays out these principles for us to follow. He calls his disciples up on the mountain and reveals to them the principles that guide the believer. So this portion of scripture that we are looking at is called the, the opening to the Sermon of the Mount, and I like to think of the Sermon of the Mount as the constitution for the believer. You know, our country has a constitution that guides the laws that we make and, and the way we perform things in this country, and I think this the Sermon of the Mount is very similar to the life of the believer. So let's read our text for today. It will be Matthew chapter 5, and we'll start reading at verse 1 and read to verse 12. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they of the prophets which were before you. So Jesus starts his ministry, he lays out in these verses how we are to receive the blessing of the Lord in his kingdom, as his followers. And the first one he mentions in, in verse 3 is being poor in spirit. This is where we all must start out at as we come to the kingdom of God. As we need to be poor in spirit. We must possess humility. And we must realize that you know, in ourselves, all that we have, even the best that we can offer to the Lord, is only as filthy rags. We cannot be proud in heart and expect to receive the blessing of the Lord. You know, Scripture plainly tells us that God will push back against us if we are proud. In James 4 6, it reads, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. So notice the difference here that will result if we are humble. There's a stark contrast in this verse. If we allow pride in our life, God will be resisting us. How successful can we expect to be in life if God, the God that controls the universe is resisting our efforts? But the opposite is true as well. As we come to Him in humility, we are promised that we receive the grace of God. And what a blessing to, expect, to experience the favor of the Lord in our life. You know, we as frail humans desire, and need the abundant grace of God. So in order for us to inherit the kingdom, we must be poor in spirit. You know, two examples of this, I believe, are the Apostle Paul and King David. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ." King David says in Psalms 51, 1-4, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Here are two men that we view as strong pillars in, in Christ's kingdom, in God's kingdom. And yet here they profess their utter inadequacy before God. You know, this concept of being poor in spirit is not a concept that is new to the, to the New Testament. God valued the poor in spirit even in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, we read, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? For all these things hath mine hand made, and all these things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. So God is saying in these verses, heaven is my throne, this is where I sit. Earth is my footstool. You know, We, in this, we live in this world, and it looks very great and complex and beautiful, and it is. But this is we are living under the feet of God. This is his footstool. This is the great and glorious things God has created, and there's things above us that are even greater. And yet God says the thing that I truly value, the thing that really catches my attention, is a man who lives in a poor and contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. But I think here we see the importance of having a humble heart as we come before. God, We need to come to him in humility so that we can inherit the kingdom of heaven. The second one, which is in verse 4, he says, Blessed are they who mourn. And I think this is more than just, you know, mourning for anything. It's, it needs to be mourning for the right things. And mourning is, you know, I think of us expressing sorrow and grief. But we need, here he's talking about us being grieved by the sin we have committed. You know, we receive the blessing from the Lord as we are honest about our sinfulness, and we ask the Lord to forgive us our iniquities and cleanse us from the deeds that we have committed against him. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You know, as, as we mourn the depravity of our hearts, we are not to stay there, as we can see in Second in, in Corinthians here. The grief that we experience, godly grief, motivates us to do something about it. Godly grief moves us to repentance, which is, leads us to salvation in Jesus Christ. So we see that our mourning, we, sh- we shouldn't stay there, but we should m- move beyond that and move toward God. This grief is a call to action so that we can experience the forgiveness through the power of the blood of Jesus and his shed blood on the cross. This repentance and the gifts of salvation frees us from the bondage of sin and death, and God can bring blessing into the life of those who mourn their sinfulness. He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more as in this verse it says we receive salvation without regret you know that's very comforting even you know as we humble sinful humans can come before god and receive salvation without regret and that's something that only god can give us thirdly we have meekness we need a spirit of meekness you know the few scriptures come to mind as we we consider this second second timothy 2 24 and 25 says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, and meekness instructing these that oppose themselves, if God, preadventure, will give them to repentance and to acknowledge, acknowledge of the truth. Says so we serve God, we are called to be, to have a gentle and meek spirit with a goal of bringing others to the Lord. You know, we don't observe much gentleness and meekness you know, as the world becomes more and more polarized. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to teach with meekness and gentleness, knowing, you know, first of all, we ourselves, were lost from the fold of Christ at times. And we have, we wander away from the path of God as well. We, we ourselves need to be brought back. So we need to be humble and meek in teaching the values of God. God puts a very high value on meekness 1 Peter three four says, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God of a great price. So here the context is Peter was sharing principles for, for wives to live by, and he tells tells these ladies to you know not be focused on their outward appearance, but instead to be focused on creating something beautiful within themselves. But I think this spirit is for the rest of us as well. It's not only for wives we all should cultivate um, this meek and quiet spirit. An ornament is something that is beautiful and attractive and something that people enjoy. You know, not only is meek and a quiet spirit a joy for others to behold, but God views it as a treasure, he says, with a great price. You know, if Almighty God sees something as very valuable, it must truly be very precious. You know, as we cultivate and develop this spirit of meekness and quietness, this is something that cannot be taken away from us. It says in this verse that it is incorruptible. You know, the, the things of this world will they'll fall apart, they'll fade away, but our inner spirit cannot be taken away from us. I think, you know, as I said before, Peter was specifically speaking to the wives here, but it's something we all do, do well to, to cultivate in our lives. You know something that is valuable is is rare and short supply. You know something that so I think you know that we see that in, in our world today, the meek and quiet spirit is in very short supply. Our n- human nature doesn't like this. We want to be protect our own interests. We want to be heard, but we need to allow the spirit of God God to conquer that selfish spirit and allow the holy Holy Spirit to let us to fill us with meekness and humility. And here in this verse in Matthew, Jesus promises. That those who are meek will inherit the earth. You know, that seems counterproductive to our to our human mind, but we know that the ways of the Lord are best. And Christ is our ultimate example of meekness. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so opened he not he not his so he openeth not his mouth. 1 Peter 2:23 Who when he was reviled, reviled not again; when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again; and when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to that judge, righteous to him that judgeth righteously. So let's follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and develop a spirit of meekness within ourselves. Next, moving on, do we come to hungering and thirsting after righteousness' sake. How much passion and effort do we put into finding food when we are really, really hungry? You know, maybe it's we've gone without food for a long time. We sit down at the dinner table after a long, hard day's work. Do we eat our food half-heartedly? Probably not. You know, if we've been working in the hot sun all day, do we, you know, how much passion do we find put into finding a cool refreshing drink. You know we usually do it with a lot of passion and we're very focused on satisfying satisfying that hunger, quenching that thirst. And all my backpacking hunting friends I think are gone today. I was, I was thinking I'd bring out something that people could relate to, but you know I've I've been a, you know in in the wilderness for for a few days at a time. And you know you eat food that is, is definitely not as good as a, a home-cooked meal. And that craving for a warm, delicious meal becomes very strong. And as you come out from, from the wilderness and back to civilization, you know, that thought of, you know, the few times has been a thought of a big, juicy hamburger with bacon and cheese and all the trimmings with a big helping of fries, you know, that consumes your thoughts. And, you know, I've experienced that a few times, and I think that's how it should be at what, for us spiritually, You know, as we are maybe eating things, consuming things that are subpar, we're not feeding ourselves spiritually, our soul should hunger and thirst after righteousness, after the things of God. You know, if we go and we, you know, supply our our body with physical food to keep ourselves going, so we should do with our spiritual life. Our spiritual life is at stake here. And God's glory is marred if we forsake his ways to fulfill fleshly appetites. You know, the things that we fill our lives with spiritually instead of the things of the Lord become our idols. Jesus is the bread of life and he satisfies our hearts. And those who come to him will never hunger or thirst again in John 6.35. But if we eat of this worldly, of, this, of the worldly goods, we will be left hungry and thirsty. You know, we've all heard examples of rich and famous people who we would think to have it all together and have have it made. Um, Yet they turn around and end their own lives because inwardly they were destitute. They did not fill themselves with the things that truly satisfied. Jesus will never do that to you. He will not leave you destitute. And also as I think about hungering and thirsting, we need to train our appetites to enjoy godly food. You know, over the last few months, I've I've done something I've never done before. I, I most days I track everything that I eat, and and then it tracks the nutrients and the calories, and that has given me a goal to work toward. And I look at food totally different than I did before, like the nutrients, the calories, and and what's good and what's not good for me. And it's it's actually really changed changed my life quite drastically. And you know, I think, you know, it now caused me to be intentional about what I eat. I think about it before I, before I put it in my mouth, you know. Is this helping me attain my goal? And, you know, it really, that really spoke to me about my spiritual life. Am I really focusing on what I'm consuming, you know, especially what we fill our minds with? Am I being intentional about that? And oftentimes, I must say, I, you know, sometimes I can be rather haphazard about that. And it just challenged me to be, you know, just as focused or more focused on my spiritual intake as my physical intake. So let's let's focus on filling our lives with the good things of God and let's you know taste and see that the Lord truly is good because in the end God will fill us as this verse says. Moving on to the next one is be merciful. We see that here in verse seven. Micah 6 also says, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk with, humbly with thy God. Here we see again Jesus bringing a principle from the Old Testament into the New Testament. God values mercy. And we also see over and over again in Scripture that we will receive mercy in our lives the way that we show mercy. Matthew 6.15 says, But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Again in Matthew 7, 2, it says, For with what, with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. So here we see that we will experience mercy as we show mercy. And that's also here in our, our text today, is that as we show mercy, we will obtain mercy. You know, if we can even start to get a glimpse of the mercy God has so abundantly poured out on us, we will allow mercy to flow freely from our lives. And as we continue to experience God's mercy, and we even grasp in a small way that God God's mercy will will be with you know flow through us to those we associate with. The story that comes to mind as I think about this is the story of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. It's Matthew 18:21 to 35, and I won't be turning to that, but the context of this parable is Jesus, Peter had just asked Jesus, you know, how often should I forgive my brother? And he asked him, should I forgive him seven times? And Jesus' reply to that was, no, forgive him 70 times seven. That's 490 times. Has any of your brothers or sisters ever sinned against you 490 times? I hope you haven't kept track if that long, but most likely, if we did, we probably wouldn't have an accurate count at that point. But I think Jesus' point is here: is keep on forgiving. Don't don't stop forgiving. Always show mercy. And Jesus follows up this this answer with the parable about the unmerciful unmerciful servant. In this in this story, there's a king that's looking over his books, and he finds that there's one of his servants that owes him a huge debt. So he calls this man in and says, you know, you're going to be sold into slavery. Everything you have is going to be sold into slavery, even your, your wife and children. And the servant falls down on his knees and just begs the king to let him, let him repay this debt. And to give you an idea of this debt, it was 10,000 talents, which is equal to 60 million denarii and a denarii is the wage for a common uh, the, the wage for a, a common man to work for one day so this this 60 million denarii that equals 200,000 years of labor and in modern day money it would be valued at 3.5 billion dollars and this was just a common man he was a servant of the king and yet he says i will repay you this is how out of touch he was with reality there was no way he was going to repay this just working on a common man's wage, you know this. This shows us, uh, like this, is an example of how we stand before God. There's no way we can repay, you know. So he, the king is the king is merciful. He says, "Okay, I will. I'll let you go. I'm going to forgive you for this debt." And you would think this servant would show mercy, you know. He had been shown such great mercy—a debt that he had no hope of ever repaying, you know. Surely he would be merciful. But no, he didn't. He didn't follow the example of his king, but instead he went out and found one of his co-workers. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded that he pay him back you know, the wage that he, the, the money that was owed to him from one of his fellow co-workers. And you would think if you would take such drastic action that that was a big debt, but actually it wasn't. This debt that was owed him was a hundred days wage. So if you think about that in today's terms, if if you know, let's say that generally a fifty thousand is maybe a salary that a man would earn today. That's about twenty thousand dollars was owed to him. So think about twenty thousand dollars versus three point five billion, and that's oftentimes what we as humans do. We are forgiven such a huge debt from God, something that we could never repay, and yet we go to our brother and demand that you know they repay us. We we focused on the little things that were done to us regardless of of the mercy of God. So I think here the challenge is, you know, we need to show mercy. God has so abundantly showered His mercy upon us. You know, we need to do more than just accept Jesus as our Savior. We need to become like Him. We need to live a life that follows His example. As James says, "...faith without works is dead." You know, we need to extend that mercy and forgiveness we have received from God to those in our lives in order for us to continue to receive the blessing of God. And in the end here, in the end of that parable, it says that the king delivered this man, this servant that was unforgiving to his fellow co worker, he delivered him to the tormentors till he would repay. How much progress do you think that servant made on repaying his debt? If he was tormented daily, I think he probably made no progress. And that's how our lives are going to be if we are unforgiving. We are going to be tormented daily by by our own unforgiveness. And we're not going to make any progress in in repaying our debt to Jesus Christ. But I'm grateful that as we do show forgiveness, we can likewise experience the freedom that comes from releasing those who have sinned against us. Moving on to the next one, in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Here Jesus is referring to our inner man, the core of who we are. You know, Out of this flows the, the rest of, of who we are. If our heart is contaminated with selfishness, pride, lusting after things of the world, or whatever we allow into our inner man, that will lead us away from God. It will draw us away from God. And as I was thinking about a pure heart, my mind went to the days where i made cheese pasteurization pasteurizing milk is basically you start with a clean slate so i think of that as the the pure heart there's no no contaminations the heat removes those contaminations and then we add the culture which is it's base, it's, it's a bacteria it's a good bacteria it it produces the flavor in the cheese it it helps you with your what your finish product becomes. And that bacteria colony doubles every 15 minutes. That's, that's how bacteria works. It, it doubles every 15 minutes. So if you have a bad bacteria, that's also doubling every 15 minutes in its ideal environment. So if I take that milk, it's pure, it's a clean slate, there's nothing in it, and I put that good culture in it, and it starts to re- reproduce, and it doubles every 15 minutes because it's at its optim, optimal environment, that colony of bacteria will actually hold back the bad ones. It doesn't allow the other ones to grow. But the opposite is also true. If I am sloppy, I have dirt everywhere in that room and I drop some bad bacteria in there, that also will grow rapidly and then that will choke out the good ones. I actually tried to make two two different types of cheese on the same day already and as careful, I tried to be as careful as possible, but that culture from, from the experiment batch actually got into the, the other cheese I was making, and a couple months later I had the wrong kind of stuff growing on that cheese. So it, con- it contaminated that batch, and that's how it is if, if we allow the wrong thing in our heart. It's gonna, it has a compound effect, it doubles. Not only do we start out with that small amount, it will double, it will grow, and it will crowd out the things of God. So we need to keep our hearts and lives pure and in tune with, with God. You know, purifying our hearts is not something that we can, you know, just on our own strength we can accomplish. You know, it's it's not something we can attain on our strength alone. And we need to come before God and ask him to create within us a clean heart within us. James 4.8 says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. It takes action on our part as well as God coming to us. You know, as we draw nigh to him, he will draw nigh to, to us. It takes both of us working together so that we can experience the goodness and the mercy and sustaining grace of Jesus Christ. And as you know, as our heart is brought to right relationship with God, we can see and experience him not only in our life today, but also in the world to come. Next we move on to peacemakers in verse 9. It says, Blessed are the peace, peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and as followers of his, you know we have a tremendous opportunity to spread peace in the world. The world is not at peace with God because we they're not experiencing the peace of God within their own hearts. How precious is peace today? How much would we give to have utter and complete peace? To, you know, get rid of all the controversy and the lack of peace and the lack within our hearts. You know, first of all, to experience that peace, we must come to the foot of the cross to have a restored relationship with our creator so that we can... Truly experience real peace. And I think people would give a lot to experience that peace. And I think it's very, very imperative that we are showing that peace to the world. You know, the moments I have experienced the most inner peace has not been when everything is going my way and everything was perfect. But the moments I have really felt that peace is when, you know, the way wasn't clear. The way looked pretty rough at times, but I was willing to lay it all before God and let Him take the wheel. So I think we need to be willing to surrender our hearts to our Lord Jesus and let Him take the wheel and then we can experience peace. We, you know, we have the title of Christians, that's Little Christ. And as little Christ, we are called to live out peace, just as Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. We are his children. And it says here in verse nine, that we will be called the children of God as we show peace. You know, as we are in tune with God and we are his children, our life will testify to, to us being his children. The peace of God will radiate from our lives and others will recognize that these people are the children of God. As earthly children imitate their parents, so we will imitate our heavenly father. So let's be known as God's children because we promote peace. And then lastly, we look at persecution. As we look at the other seven beatitudes here, I think they're all things that we would say that we, our goals for our life is something we want to experience, It's something we want to have within us. But persecution, probably for most of us, brings different emotions to mind. It's probably one that we most of us really don't like to think about. Maybe you maybe you, you're different and you relish the thought of being persecuted. But I think for most of us it's not so, it's something we'd rather avoid. But if as we look at scripture, we see over and over again that the people of God will experience persecution. We have many positive and un, uplifting promises in scripture. But this is one we'd rather not think about, you know, as persecution. In 2 Timothy 3.12, the Apostle Paul was writing to his young pastor friend, Timothy, and he says this to him, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You know, as we live lives for the Lord, our lives will be different. And oftentimes, when we're different, that brings, you know, causes people to, to focus on that and maybe persecute you for that. You stick out from the crowd, and that can lead to persecution. Scripture would indicate that it's not if, but when we will face persecution. You know, oftentimes we think of persecution as torture and death, but persecution can come in very many different forms. You know, the dictionary gives us the definition of harassing or punishment or pestering for a a belief. So it's it's not only being... um, Injured or, or dying for our faith, but it's you know sometimes it can be verbally or mentally we can be persecuted. You know sometimes unfortunately it's people who also profess to follow Christ that are persecuting other followers of Jesus. Sometimes it's our own family or friends, it's those who we consider friends. Um, but as we, we we face this persecution, we can look at the life of Jesus and Jesus was persecuted as well, and as well as the prophets. And, you know, over and over again, it, Jesus says that you will be blessed as you suffer for his sake. So how should we respond in being persecuted for Christ's sake? We should rejoice and leap for joy, according to Luke 6, 23. You know, that's not the response that we would normally t- think about, is, is rejoicing and leaping for joy. And it also says... Bless those who persecute you. This is mentioned at the end of chapter 5 here in Matthew. I think these are two themes that run throughout the Bible, is, is that we should rejoice in our persecution. And I think maybe we should look at it as you know, opportunities to, to testify of the Lord's goodness when we are being persecuted instead of seeing it as, as just pain and suffering. So I think the, the two themes of rejoicing and blessing those who are persecuting us are the two themes that we should keep in mind as we, can go, as we go through persecution. There's quite a number of verses or more verses dedicated to persecution here, and they all remind us to rejoice in that, even though it's unpleasant to our physical bodies. So as we think about the Beatitudes and you know the principles Jesus lays out for us, what is what is the purpose in all this? I know we didn't read this in our text, but the next few verses I just want to read here in closing and gives us an idea of what the intent of these principles are as Jesus lays out for us. It says, "'You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is hence, henceforth good for nothing.'" But be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a, be- under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So I think the the reason Jesus gives these principles for us to live by is not only do they... Are they good for our own lives? But they're also they bring glory to God. And I know a lot of times, you know, in Christianity today we shy away from, from the, the term good works. But here we see that these these good works, if you want to use that term, in verses, you know, one through twelve, they are to bring glory to God. Good works are for the glory of God. They're not to bring glory to ourselves. But as we work out these, these principles that Jesus has shared with us, people can look at that and their glory will not be to us. The glory given will not be to us, but to God. It also says we are salt and light. You know, as we live these principles, we will be a light in a dark world. So this is a challenge to you know, live out these principles as we follow God so that we can be a testimony for the goodness of God. Let's kneel for prayer. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we bow before you this morning. We with grateful hearts that even though we are frail human humanity, that you have reached out in love and grace, you have extended your forgiveness to us. And I just pray this morning that you would help us to, to reach back and, and accept that gift. We'd let you be Lord of our life, and that we could live out the principles that you have laid out for us here in Matthew 5 just pray that you would help us to be a light in a dark world, help us to be salt, and that we might bring glory to your name through all this. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.